Well, I don't invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, and I want to be the first one to officially uh, just say, Happy Almost New Year. It's coming, right? 2024 is coming. I know that December 31st, I appreciate all of you being here in this place to worship in this moment because we're in the midst of holiday season. I get that. It's really busy. It's really chaotic. Some of you have parties and celebrations to go to tonight, but you prioritize being in this place with God's people to hear his word preached this morning. So I'm so thankful for that. But man, the new year is always an exciting time for us, isn't it? It's a it's, it's an opportunity, it's a reminder that we get a clean slate, that we can start afresh and we can start anew. And the anticipation of a, of a, a brand new start kind of sparks something in us, doesn't it? Because for many of us, I'm sure you have regrets from the past year. I'm sure you have moments that you would just like to leave behind. As we close the door on 2023, you're like, man, I want to let go of that. I want to move on from that. I want to forget that and just move on to whatever God has for me in the future, and want to move on to better things. And so for some of us, as we think about the new year, it means a chance for us, most recently, to move on from maybe the Buckeyes getting steamrolled in the Cotton Bowl. That was a little tough the other night, wasn't it? Those of you who watched the game, that was a little bit painful. I cannot believe I'm saying this in this moment, but at least we still have the Browns. (laughs) Amen? I can't believe it. We still have the Browns. I've been saying we still have the Buckeyes for like 30 years, and all of a sudden it's flip-flopped, and I don't know what to do. Like literally, I was watching the game um, the, 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 the night they got into the playoffs and they won on Thursday night. I was watching the game. I was texting my uh, Pastor Dave. I was texting my dad. I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself. Like it must be a new year, right? Because the Browns are in the playoffs, It's just crazy to think about. It's been so long that we've been waiting for this. Any big Browns fans in the room here? Okay, so several of you, the rest of you, you know the joke, even if you're not a Browns fan. But we've been waiting for this moment for them to be good for so long. And now that it's here, it's like, I don't know what to do. Usually by this time of the year, I'm so frustrated with them that I just, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. And now everything's flip-flopped. You know, I think about that and I'm like, have you? Have you ever been in a moment in your life where you thought, to your, you thought to yourself, okay, all of the anticipation, it might be something completely different than the Browns, all the anticipation, all of the work, all of the effort, all of the buildup, the hype, the hysteria, everything has come and has gone and now it's over. What do I do now? Where do I go from here? You guys ever felt that in your life? I'm sure as soon as I share this illustration with you, you will remember very well that feeling because many of us felt this way in 1999 on December 31st. You remember it well, right? Like there was all of this buildup toward Y2K and we were anticipating as a people, as a society, we were anticipating the possibility that there might be some sort of digital meltdown, that there might be like global anarchy Y2K hysteria was very real, and really for probably 18 months, maybe even a little longer, we were building up to this one moment when the clock would strike midnight and it would, the clocks would turn over to, to the year 2000. Man, people were anticipating this meltdown. They were pulling money out of their banks. They were preparing uh, you know, for martial law, expanding their arsenals. They were stockpiling insane amounts of canned goods and 
rice and beans and dry goods. They were getting ready for the apocalypse, apparently. Uh, Man, people were storing up money. They were filling up their bathtubs with water. They were building underground bunkers, all because the possibility was that there might be a massive catastrophe in our nation and even around the world. I actually looked it up this week and there was an estimated amount that Americans spent on Y2K preparation alone. And it was this much, $195 billion. People were preparing for this potentially cataclysmic moment and they were spending some of them their life savings getting ready for this. But you remember when the clocks rolled over to the year 2000 at midnight. My guess is even if you weren't the typical person that stays up past midnight to ring in the new year, my guess is is that for many of you, you probably stayed up because you just wanted to see what's going to happen. So the clocks rolled over, it turned midnight, it was the year 2000, and nothing. Nothing but a bunch of letdown. And I remember how I felt, okay? I didn't get caught up in all the hysteria. I did a little bit of preparation myself, very minimal. But I remember thinking, wow, that was anticlimactic. <laughs> uh, what do we do now? Like all of this buildup, all of this excitement, all of this panic what, where do we go from here? I don't know how to move on from this place. And I think about that. And you remember how you felt when the clock struck midnight. We aren't the only ones that have felt that way in history. You see, in the book of Exodus, we're going to look at chapter 33 this morning. The book of Exodus, Israel was in a season of new beginnings in their history. See, after 400 years of slavery, many of you know the story of the history of Israel. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt under the heavy hand of Pharaoh and his army, they had actually been let go. They had been set free and they had a bright new future in front of them with all kinds of possibilities with God as God initiated a covenant relationship with them. They didn't seek out God necessarily. God sought them out. God started this relationship with them. And so as Israel was entering into this new season of covenant with God, like most new relationships, they had to work out some kinks, right? You remember your marriage when you first stepped into, you know, the honeymoon was over and you realized, oh, this is real. This is real, and we have to work through some difficulties. We have to learn to live together. We have to learn to love one another and to communicate and to honor each other. This is exactly where Israel was in their relationship with the Lord who had established a covenant with them, and it wasn't easy. There were a lot of bumps along the way. God literally had to reprogram everything from their motivations to their thoughts to their actions to their identities even down to their worship. And it was ugly. As we look through the first five books of the Bible in particular, the Pentateuch, we see how ugly it got at times because it was difficult for the Israelites to figure out how to let go of their past, how to let go of their identity as slaves who were just um, accustomed to producing, to working. How do we rest in God? How do we Let God lead us. How do we become monotheistic when we're used to a very polytheistic world? They had to learn all of these new things. And so here we are, a little bit of backstory, just a short amount of backstory in Exodus chapter 32. We catch up with the Israelites as they're camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, they had just arrived at Mount Sinai, um, and they had just seen a couple of months earlier, they had just seen one of the greatest miracles, one of the greatest acts of God's power 
in the entire history of humankind when God literally parted the Red Sea so that a million people could walk through to safety and the the Red Sea coming down and uh, swallowing up Pharaoh's army. They had just discovered a new life of freedom. They were on the other side of the Red Sea and they arrived at Mount Sinai and they thought they were going to be there for a very short layover. They thought they might be there for a few days, maybe even a few weeks. Well, that short layover that was supposed to lead to a short hike to the promised land, to Canaan, ended up turning into 11 months of being camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. And the people were there and they were starting to feel stuck. They were starting to feel like they didn't know what God was doing. They didn't know where he was leading. They still didn't have a a fully formed relationship with him. They didn't fully trust him yet. They hadn't seen all of his good deeds and all that he was going to do in and through them, but they felt stuck. And Moses, their national leader, who was the, the, the voice of God to them in some ways, he would disappear for weeks at a time. He would go up onto this mountain and approach this God who to the rest of them was unapproachable and unattainable, he would go up there and he would fellowship with God at the the top of this mountain, consumed by the presence of God, uh, visualized through fire and smoke. Now, while they were camped out waiting for Moses to return, they began to doubt if he would ever come back. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is at the top, and it's been 40 days. There's fire and there's smoke up there. For all they know, Moses has been consumed by this all-consuming all-powerful God. They literally did not know what was happening. So they begin to doubt God's goodness. They begin to doubt what God is doing. And so they resort back to the thing that is very natural to them. They resort back to worship. And now understand that Moses had already commanded the people, God had commanded the people through Moses to not craft or make Uh, idols out of precious metals like silver and gold. They had already been commanded that you will worship me and me alone. So don't make out idols for your own selves. But in this moment, in their uncertainty, what they wanted is they wanted a tangible, they wanted a visible God to worship because that's how we're bent in our natural state, aren't we? Like in, in, uh, in an absence of a relationship with the living God, we will find something to worship. We will find something to give our affections to because we are wired to worship something. And so this is exactly what they're doing. They are giving their affections to this thing called a golden calf. So they surrender all of their jewelry. They craft a golden calf to worship together. And you can see early on in chapter 32 specifically that this relationship was going to be difficult. And that even though God had brought the people out of Egypt, getting Egypt out of his people was going to be a more difficult task. This was this is something that was monumental for the Lord to be able to do. And so the Lord is up on Sinai with Moses and he looks down upon the camp. He sees what's happening. He says, Moses, you need to get down there and take care of this problem. I see what's happening and this is not good. And I do not approve of this because they have made a golden calf and they are worshiping some, some other God besides me. So he sends Moses back down to intervene on behalf of the people because God is literally ready to consume them in his righteous wrath. And so Moses goes back down to the camp. After 40 days, he shows up 
he sees that they've made this golden calf, and in his anger, he, uh, he strikes down the calf, they burn it up, they burn it to the point where it is literally gold dust, and he takes the dust of this gold, and he puts it in their water source, and he forces the people to drink it. And God says the people, need, the people that rebelled, the people that worship this idol need to be eliminated from the camp. So Moses identifies 3,000 people that had rebelled against God that day, and they were eliminated. And so here is Israel. Here is Moses in this moment. And they're like, what do we do now? Like, we don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We feel stunted. We feel stuck here at Mount Sinai. And they just feel like they didn't know what God was doing. Have you ever felt that way in your life where you don't know how to move forward in your discipleship journey with the Lord? Maybe you made, uh, you know, maybe you made a terrible decision in your finances or in a relationship. Maybe you encountered a great loss. Maybe you've encountered, uh, maybe you bet the farm and lost everything. Maybe you felt the consequences of your own sin. And you think to yourself, where do I go from here now? I don't know what to do. I feel stuck in this place. So the question for us this morning is, how do we move forward into a future that is unknown with our God? And specifically, we're thinking about 2024. How do we move into 2024 when we have no idea what he has in store for us? Well, we see in Exodus chapter 33 that there are some outcomes of an attitude of not only the people of Israel, but, but specifically of Moses. Moses had four attitudes or four responses to how to move forward in light of what had just happened in Exodus chapter 32. And so I know that there's not fill in the blanks this morning, but if you want to take some notes, you certainly can on your program. I'm going to give you four short points this morning. Moses' first response was a pursuit of God's pardon. It was a pursuit of God's pardon. This is where I want to get into Scripture. Moses and the people pursued God's pardon. Uh, more simply put, they were repentant people. Look at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 33. Now, we're going to work through sections, um, almost the entire chapter, but we're, we're going to work through sections of, of Exodus chapter 33 this morning and draw these points or these conclusions or these responses of Moses and the people. Now, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. So here's God. He's saying, it's time to move on. It's time to start heading toward the promised land. What's done is done. We're moving forward. He said, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, this was disastrous to them, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for one single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I, may know, uh, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai onward. And so this is the attitude. This is the response of the people moving forward with God into the unknown is they pursue God's pardon. 
And I think about this moment, how easy would it have been for God to look at the hearts of the people, to look at this golden calf and say, you know what? I know what these people are all about. I know that rebellion is in their hearts. I know that they are bent toward evil. I know that this road is going to be rocky. I'm just going to wipe them out now and I'm going to start over clean. I'm going to start over with maybe Moses and a few of his family or a few righteous people in the camp. I'm going to wipe everybody else out. No one would have blamed God if he had done that in this moment, because we know the history of the Jews. We know that the time that is to come, the centuries that are to come, are going to be extremely difficult with a lot of highs and a lot of low lows in this relationship between God and his people. We see, God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't just cut us off when we mess up. That's not who our God is. In fact, Lamentations, we don't read out of Lamentations very often. But I love this passage of scripture. Chapter 3, verse 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the God that we serve. He's not quick to just write us off. He's not quick to just consume us in his righteous anger and wrath. He is patient. He is steadfast. He is long-suffering toward us. His mercies are new every morning. This is the God that we serve. And he was just beginning in his relationship with this people. He wasn't finished in his work. He wanted to finish it. And that's a reminder to us today that when he begins a good work in us, he is going to be faithful to complete it in us. You've heard Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, um, Philippians 1, 6 says, And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to complete the salvation that he has begun in each and every one of us. But he knows at the same time that we are going to fail. He knows that our hearts will fail. He knows that our devotions, will, our loyalties will be divided. He knows that we are bent towards sin and we are prone to wander. And so what does he want from us in response to that? Because he is faithful to his covenant, even when we are not. What he wants is repentance. He wants us to turn back to him when we stray away in sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is this faithful God who is just, and he is merciful, and he is steadfast, and he promised to fulfill uh, this, uh, I guess, this prophecy that he declared over them, that he would deliver them to the promised land, but there would be some consequences that came as a result of their sin. God would send them on their way, but he was not going to go with them. He refused to go with them because in his wrath and in his anger, he would consume them. So he was going to send an angel instead. You ever done this? You ever done this with your kids? <laughs> when they upset you? Like, think about it. Maybe, maybe most of you, your grandparents now. Uh, but remember when your kids were still in the house and they were younger and they would just anger you so much. They would get under your skin. They knew exactly where to poke you and they would break the trust, the bond of trust between you and them. They would mess up royally. And everything within you just wants to pour out your wrath upon them in order to make yourself feel better. But instead of raging against them, 
all you can say is, I love you, get away from me right now. You ever done that? You remember that feeling like, just get out of my presence right now. This is a little bit how God is acting with the Israelites right now. And only the difference is is that he is righteous in his reaction, in his anger. I got to tell you, 20 years ago, I did a version of this um, with my oldest daughter, Sydney, when she was a newborn. Um, And I confess to you that uh, when I did this very thing, it was much less righteous than when God did this with Israel. But I got to tell you, Sydney was probably two, maybe three weeks old at the time. And my wife had left her with me for the very first time all by myself. And I'm a little intimidated, right? Like I'm a 25-year-old guy who's never really taken care of a baby. I've read the books and I'm like, okay, I know what to do. Becky leaves the house and I promise you, as soon as she walked out the door, man, Sydney was turned on and she just started screaming. And she went on and on and I did everything the book said I was supposed to do, right? Like I fed her, I burped her, I changed her diaper, I put her pacifier in her, I held her, I rocked her, I cradled her, I sang to her, which probably just made it worse, I don't really know. But man, this girl was screaming and you understand that I'm 25 and I have like a deep sense of a need for peace and calm in my life. That's the way I'm kind of wired. And so this girl just brings chaos into my life and she's like three weeks old. And I'm like, I can't take this, I can't take this, I can't take this. Finally, I get to the point where I'm like, I've done everything that I can do. I don't know what to do. I need to walk away from the situation. So I literally take her and I lay her down gently in the middle of the floor in the living room and I just walk away. And I'm over here and she's over there crying and I'm like, oh, I can't take this. I can't take this. And I start repeating to myself, I love my kid. I love my kid. I love my kid. (laughs) You guys ever had to remind yourself that with your kids? I love my kid. This is exactly what I had to do in order to protect her from, her, from, from me and to protect myself from me. I was angry because I couldn't control it. Now God has this righteous anger with the people of Israel and he has to send them away. He's like, I'm not going with you. This is going to be your consequence. I'm not going to go with you. The people obviously don't like that, but God was being merciful in this moment. He's saying, I'm going to send you away without me Otherwise, I'm going to consume you. I'm going to destroy you. When the people are confronted with their sin, when they're confronted with the fact that they have messed up, they realize that the rebellion brought some serious consequences. Scripture says it was disastrous to them. They realized the consequences that it brought, and then they repented. They realized the error of their ways. And so Scripture says that none of them would put on their ornaments from that moment on. They wouldn't wear their jewelry. They recognized in that moment that their jewelry that they still had was some sort of identification or um, relationship with the idol, uh, the idolatrous heart that was within them. And they realized We can't put on our jewelry and fancify everything on the outside when our hearts are black with sin and rebellion and idolatry on the inside. So they refuse to put on their their ornaments, their their, uh, fancified jewelry. And folks, I I believe the church needs to hear this. We just settle in here for just a moment because we, um, we need to hear this because we no longer sorrow over our sinfulness. We are a people that is not used to lamenting over our transgressions. We're quick to give ourselves a hall pass when we mess up. We're quick to make excuses and and fancify all of our rebellion against God. We make up all these reasons as to why it's okay. 
The church no longer wants to admit, Christians no longer want to admit that they are broken, that they rebel against God, and that there comes with that serious consequences. We've been hoodwinked into thinking that because God is loving, because God is just, and because he's merciful, that he turns a blind eye to our sin. So we begin to tolerate sin, and we make a bed with it, and then we celebrate it. And we believe it's not that big of a deal to God, And the truth is, is that for many of us in the church today, we don't want to hear sermons on sin, and we don't want to hear sermons on repentance, and we don't want to hear sermons on conviction. We don't want to hear sermons like this because it doesn't make us feel good about ourselves. When we talk about repentance, it makes us feel something that we don't necessarily like because there's conviction over our sin. If we have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us and we are openly rebelling against God, or maybe even not openly rebelling, we're just rebelling against him, then there is going to be conviction of sin. There is going to be discipline because of that sin. And it's because of our hard-heartedness that God has to do this. The truth is, is that we don't want to hear about this because we don't like the way it sounds. But it might be that some of us, when we feel bad about ourselves, that conviction, it's because we are quenching the Holy Spirit of God inside of us because we refuse to walk away from our sin. We refuse to humble ourselves before a holy God and say, God, I have failed, I have messed up, I have turned away from you, and I am turning back. Will you forgive me? I'm confessing my sins. And we are hard-hearted people because we won't do it because we believe that God is just all good and he's all loving, and he's all merciful, and he wants me to feel good about myself. And when we don't feel good about ourselves, we think that something is wrong with God. But the fact of the matter is, I'm preaching something that you're maybe not used to hearing every week. I'm getting a little bit fired up because I believe that the church needs to um, revisit the idea of repentance and the importance of walking away from our sins. Happy New Year. Are you glad you came to church today? (laughs) I get a little fired up about that because I just think that we so easily excuse away our sins. But these people in Israel, they didn't get it right all the way through. We know that. But in this moment, they realize, wow, we really did mess this up. And we need to turn our hearts back to God. They were repentant. They sought out God's pardon. The second response from Moses specifically, number two, was a passion for God's presence. Exodus chapter 33, we'll read starting in verse 12. We're going to jump down through a section um, and we're going to look, look at verse 12 where it says, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I truly have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, like consider this, God, that this nation is your people. They're not mine. And he said, God said to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Why would the people grieve their sin just prior to this? Why would they grieve their sin when God had already told them, hey, listen, I'm still going to send you to the promised land. It's just that I'm not going with you, but I'm going to send my angel to go with you. Why would they grieve over it? They're still getting, it seems like, what they want, at least mostly. And I believe the reason that they're grieved over their sin in this moment is because they realize that that they've, they've tasted the presence of God among them and they don't want to go without it. Moses, in this moment, he's had a sense of the presence of God. And let me ask you this question this morning. 
as we make it practical, as we make it um, applicable to us, what do you truly want in your Christian life? If you're being honest, what part does God play in your life? Is he the end or is he just a means to an end? Because there are a lot of people that love to use God for how it makes them feel. They love to use God for the good things that he gives them. They love to accumulate information about God. They love to learn about him. They love to study his word. And certainly we should love to study his word. But there are many Christians that get caught up in the study of God and about God. And in the process, they miss intimately knowing him. And there is a difference between knowing about God and truly knowing him. And I'm telling you here this morning, every one of us should be students of the word. We should all be in the word every day. And this is something that we should fight for and we should be jealous for in our lives. We need to learn about God, yes. But some of us, the truth is, is that we are just consumed by information consumption. We just want to know more about him so that we can have the answers, so that we can have the verses, so that we can make other people, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess, like jealous of us and what we know about God and what we know about his word. And in the process, we don't even truly know him. There are a lot of Christians sitting in pews and in seats in churches just like this that know all about God, but they have no intimacy with him. Think about the good things that God gives us. You know, Scripture tells us in James chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And we know that God is the giver of all good gifts. And he gives us very good things, man. Like, we've all been blessed with good careers, maybe good spouses. We've got kids that are fed, grandkids that are fed. We've got our bills paid. We've got gas in our tanks. We've got a little bit of money saved up. We've got a nest egg uh, for our retirements, all these things. We have been richly blessed. And let me ask you this morning, is that all you're after in your relationship with God? Because if that satisfies you, just the good things that he gives you, then I would submit to you that you are missing out on what it truly means to to have the presence of God in your life. You are missing out and your, your, your relationship with God is far too shallow. And there are some of us who sit in this place and we wonder why we're pleased in life, but we're never satisfied. C.S. Lewis, I've probably read this quote before. He once said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. Moses would not be easily pleased. He wanted more. He's like, God, I I get that all these benefits are good. I get that, you know, the, the good things that you give us are a blessing Um, But I've been through too much with you, God, to settle for these things. I don't just want a place. I don't just want a promised land. I don't just want the presence of an angel. God, no offense, but I've seen your miracles. I've been delivered by you. You have used me. I've sat in your presence. I have spoke to you as a man speaks to his friend. God, we are way too far along in this relationship for me to be settling for making mud pies. Like, that's not going to satisfy me. And Moses is like, I want to be in your presence. 
verse 13, circling back to that verse, I love it because when God says, uh, now therefore, um, if I, or Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways. He wants to know the ways of God that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He didn't just want to know about God. He wanted to know him. He wanted to experience the presence of God in his life. And that was consuming for him. Do you long for God and his presence in your life? Do you long to have an experience with his presence? Or are you simply satisfied by receiving the good gifts that he gives you and just knowing about him? Do you want his presence like Moses did? Do you pursue it? The third response from Moses is number three, an attitude of persistence. Moses was persistent. I love this. This is one of my favorite sections in the whole chapter, uh, just because it reminds me of myself in some ways when I'm unsure um, with other people in my conversation. So um, God says to Moses in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Like Moses, he gets his way. And Moses says to him in that moment, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that I have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. I love this because God in this moment says, Moses, I'm going with you. I hear your prayers. I'm answering your prayers. I'm going to go with this people. I'm going to withhold my wrath and I am going to go with you. And Moses is like, wait, hold on, God. You know, I got more to say here. Like he's still petitioning God. He's still reminding him what he's asking. And I've done this so many times. You probably have too. You know how it is when you're in a debate or an argument with your spouse or someone that you know, and you're back and forth, and you're trying to win the argument, you're trying to prove your point, you're trying to get them to flip their side to yours, and you're just going, and you're, you're giving all these arguments, and all of a sudden, the, the other person says, you're right, you win, I relent, I see your point now, I see your side, I'm with you, and you're like, wait, hold on, like, I still have more compelling points to prove why I'm right, like, we do this, don't we? My wife does this to me all the time, she'll shut me down in the middle of a debate, and I'm like, what? Like, I still have more stuff to say here. And this is exactly what Moses is doing. God's like, okay, Moses, I'm going with you. And Moses is like, no, I'm not done yet. Like, I still need to make sure. Moses is persistent in this moment. And I could just imagine God in this point in the relationship, in the conversation, saying, Moses, did you not hear what I said? My presence will go with you. I'm going with you. And Moses is like, nah, it's too easy. It's too easy. I got to keep proving my point. I got to keep digging this into the ground. I'm going to need some reassurances, God. He doesn't trust it. He doesn't trust God's response because he's still learning to trust the relationship with God. It hasn't developed quite to the point where he completely trusts what God has told him. And the presence of God is on the line here, and you don't want to misunderstand what you're hearing when God's presence is on the line. So Moses is like, let's just be clear what we're agreeing to, God. Because if you're not going, I'm not going either. Like, I don't want to leave this place. Your presence is so important to me that don't send me from this mountain. Don't send me with this people. If you don't go with us, this task that you're sending us on, this trek, this journey, it's too monumental. It's too big. There's too many people, too many problems. 
I need you with me. So if you don't go, if you're out, I'm out. Moses is like, I desperately need your presence. I think that the, there are too many Christians, myself included, that we are really good at doing Christianity. We are really good at doing ministry without the power and the presence of God. And I think the scary thing in some ways is that we might even be shocked if the Holy Spirit showed up and breathed the fresh wind of a movement of the, of the work of God amongst us like he did in Acts chapter 2. We wouldn't know what to do with it because we're so used to doing ministry and doing life in our own strength, in our own power. And Moses is like, I need your power and I need to make sure that you are with me. So don't send me from this place without you. I beg you, God. What we need is a total reliance on the power of God to do what he cannot do in our lives and what we cannot fake because a lot of us are good at faking it. I can come to church on Sunday mornings and I can put a smile on my face and I can act like everything is good and I can even preach a sermon and the truth is I can try to do it in my own strength. And I have, admittedly, in the past. And I have learned throughout the years, even the, the more skilled that I've got in this, in this discipline, in this gift of being able to preach in front of people, the better I get at it, the more I realize I need God. Like, I don't get, I don't get more confident as I go. I, my need for God grows greater as I grow. This is what we need. This is the attitude that we need in our lives. Maybe sometimes we should just what we should just do is demonstrate the kind of like persistence like the woman in the parable that Jesus shared. Remember Luke chapter 18? He shares the parable of the woman that kept going in front of the unrighteous judge. She keeps appearing before him saying, judge, this is what I want you to rule. I need you to rule in my favor. And she keeps coming back to him day after day after day. And scripture says, Jesus said this judge was not righteous. He didn't fear God. He didn't care what people thought. He simply at some point relented and agreed to uh, give a verdict in her favor because he was just sick of her. She was persistent and she was beginning to annoy him and she would not relent. Folks, maybe we need to pursue God with a persistence that mirrors that, that mirrors Moses because Moses would not relent. He wanted God's manifested presence to be the proof that they were, the people of Israel were distinct from the rest of the world. And so God agrees. He says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do because I know you by name. Christian, understand this morning, if you are in Christ, and I believe many of you are, if not all of you, if you are in Christ, then he knows you by name. So pursue him passionately. Persist in your pursuit of him. No matter how long you've been walking with him, don't relent, don't let up, keep chasing after him. Persist in your prayers toward him. Don't relent. Moses would not relent with God. He just persisted and pursued even more. And then number four, the fourth response from Moses was this, a desperation for a peak. A desperation for a peak. All he wanted was a glimpse of God. He wanted a glimpse of God's glory. Look at verses 18 and 19, and we'll close out in Exodus 33 with this. Moses said this, he said, please God, I know you've just relented. I know you're going with us. I know that you have answered my prayer. Now, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Jehovah. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses in this moment is like, okay, I just got what I want. Now I'm going to ask for more. Show me your glory, God. Moses wants a picture of something that no one has ever seen before after the fall. You know, my dad, my dad used to have a saying when I was a kid. He still says it from time to time. He would say this, whenever we had a, had a request and then we wanted more from him, he would say, give him an inch and he'll take a mile. Give him an inch and he'll take a mile. He used to say that to me all the time because we would always try to take advantage of his generosity or his favor or his permission. We would always say, oh, I got dad. I got dad in a weak moment. I'm going to keep asking for more. And we would always try to take a mile. And that's exactly what Moses is doing here. God gave him that inch. And he's like, God, now I don't want the inch. Now I want the whole mile. I want the whole package. But who could blame Moses? If you stop and think about it, Moses is at this point in his relationship with God where he is beginning to plunge into the depths of knowing who God is and truly understanding his presence in his life, and he couldn't get enough. And I fear that too many of us have got enough of God, and we've grown familiar with him, and we don't really want to know him more. We don't really want to know him more intimately, but I imagine that we would react the same way. The same thing would happen to us when, if we were to encounter the wonder of God's presence like Moses did. You want it all, and then you want some more. You get the inch, you want to take the whole mile. I mean, think about it. If we could sit in the presence of God for just a few moments, or just a few days, maybe even a few years or decades, and one day we will, if we could possibly grow tired or bored of the presence of God, then he would probably cease to be God in our lives. Many Christians, I believe, they dread the thought of eternity because they don't understand the magnificence of the presence of God. Yes, they want heaven, but they want to put it off as long as possible because they don't truly understand the magnificence of his glory and they don't look forward to it. You know, the, the, the beauty of God's majesty is that once you fix your gaze on him, you become mesmerized by his glory and it's never enough. This is the appeal of heaven. The appeal of heaven is not in the pearly gates. It's not in the streets of gold. The appeal of heaven is not in glorified bodies. It's not in that mansion just over the hilltop, right? It's not in any of those things. The appeal of heaven is the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our King, our Redeemer. So friend, if you were, if you were to catch a glimpse of the glory of God, I imagine everything else in life would become secondary and trivial. All the things that you consume yourself, like when I get to heaven, I want all the answers to my theological questions. All the things that I didn't understand in this life, I want God to explain it to me. When I get to heaven, I can't wait for that reunion with that loved one that I lost so many years ago. All I think about is that heavenly reunion with that person. Some of us, we think, man, when we get to heaven, um, all we're going to worry about are the things that we left behind here on this earth. Folks, I promise you that when we get to the throne room of God and we see our Savior face to face, all of these things will seem small. All of these things will become secondary. None of them will be important to us because we will be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that is all that matters. And that will be all that matters. In fact, I love this in Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John, he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And you remember, we just went through the series on Revelation. Um, in the early part of his letter, he gets caught up into the throne room of heaven. 
And he gets a glimpse of what heaven is going to be, and he writes about it. This is what he says in Revelation 1, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full glory. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. This is the Savior that we will be reunited with. This is the glory of God that we will see, and we will never grow weary. We will never grow tired. We will never grow bored when we get to eternity. Moses wanted a glimpse of this glory. And in the goodness of God, In his mercy and in his favor, he actually shows him a glimpse of himself. He says, Moses, you cannot see my face because no one has ever seen my face and lived. So I'm going to put you in a little cave on the side of a mountain in the cleft of a rock. And I'm going to cover you with my hand and I'm going to let my presence go before you and you will see my backside. Moses gets to see the glorious backside of God. And this is a moment that changes his life forever This was enough to satisfy him. Because check it out. This is early on in the 40 years of journey in the wilderness toward the promised land. Moses leads the people. You know the story. He leads the people for the next 40 years. He sins along the way. God says, you're not going into the promised land. But guess what? Didn't really matter that much to Moses, did it? At the end of 40 years, as the people are about to go across that Jordan River, God sends him up a mountain and says, Moses, I'm going to let you get a glimpse from a distance of this place called Canaan, this promised land. But the interesting thing about it is, is that Moses is no longer interested in the place as much as he is the presence of God. He goes up and he is satisfied to just see it from a distance. And I can only imagine that that satisfaction comes from the fact that at some point 40 years earlier, He had seen the presence and the power and the glory of God up close. And that was all that he needed to move forward in life, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled. May that be our prayer in 2024, that we experience the power of the presence of God in our lives and that he be the one that satisfies us. Heavenly Father.